Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus of History at the Exeter University. He is, one, without a doubt, the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today, written well over 150 books, and today we're discussing his newest book, History of Artillery, published by Rowan and Littlefield. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, why did you write this book? I'm trying to rethink uh, the military history in thematic terms. I've done a number of books in chronological terms and in overall terms, chronologically, 16th century, 17th century, and so on. And in thematic terms, I've done histories of air power, tanks, fortifications, and so on. And in a sense, this, and one which has also just come out on cavalry, are part of the sequence. Having said that, they are each designed to stand on their own. And in each case, I've tried to do what is almost counterintuitive in publication. Most books, the authors pick a topic and then say this topic is the most important thing that one needs to uh, uh, connect with, address, and the what a surprise, they are the people that realise this and they have a radical new interpretation. What instead I've tried to do, and you can see that, for example, in my books on air power or tanks, is to say, yes, these are important topics and we need to look at them. But we need to move away from a kind of magic bullet approach to military history, or indeed I would say any other form of history, but by its nature history is a multivalent process, that one has to allow for contexts, conjunctures, uh, the various frictions of operational factors, and indeed the extent to which the other side has a big part to play. And we need to move away from the magic bullet fallacy. So in my book on artillery, I've argued for the significance of artillery, but I've tried to adopt a broad uh, approach to artillery, including ships' guns, for example, and including tank guns, and self-propelled guns, but what I've tried to do is to not say this is the only way to look at the subject. And may I say, I mean, I've heard a lot of very good uh, interviews on the New Book Network, and I think it does a marvellous job, but whenever you hear somebody saying this is fundamental, this is crucial, and they have got a radical new interpretation that changes everything, that not only are they almost certainly wrong, but they need calling out as wrong. I agree entirely. What was, or what were, the earlier precursors of artillery in the ancient world? Well, I mean, you you know, as you know, and I, I've tried to discuss these, um, the most obvious one is catapult. Um, I mean, what one's looking here is a ground-based weapon that fires projectiles and is fired by more than one human. So obviously, we're not talking about a, a javelin or a bow and arrow or a slingshot. But in practical terms, 
the projectiles one's referring to, for example, catapults, fire, as it were, larger rocks. The actual uh, nature of the ordnance is not uh, different to a slingshot, but what is different is the um, force that they can uh, apply, and therefore the distance um, and velocity and impact that they can enjoy. Who invented the cannon? Uh, no single person invented the cannon. I mean, uh, and indeed it's rather interesting that, you know, as you know, uh, there were frequent attempts to, um, in fiction, uh, to say that uh, you know, it derives from such and such a, as it were, quasi-magical figure. Um, I think it's fairer to say that what one is looking at is a range of, of uh, practices that really developed, I would argue, gunpowder weaponry first in China. Um, we can't be sure when or how or precisely where it was invented, but it seems to be the case that the formula for the manufacture of gunpowder was possibly developed in the ninth century. That doesn't necessarily mean cannon. Gunpowder bombs indeed could be fired by uh, catapults, and each of the processes of development that one can look at, so the use of gunpowder as a propellant or as explosive as opposed to as a pyrotechnic composition, which is what you get with a firework, and as you know, the Chinese made uh, extensive use of those, um, requires quite a few, um, in a sense, um, thought and mechanical processes. You've got to discover that compacting the powder in a small chamber alters the way the material behaves when ignited. And, you know, if you just spread gunpowder on your your lawn, for example, and ignited it, it's not going to have the effect that if you put it in your car exhaust and set light to it. Now, I'm not urging anybody to do any of those, of course. Uh, not in your own car exhaust. By all means, do it to somebody else if you decide. No, I didn't mean that. Anyway, go on, continue. <laughs> what, were the, what was the earliest conflict in which the canon, uh, to employ a vernacular expression, was a game-changer? Well, that's, again, an excellent uh, question. And one of the problems we've got is that for a lot of uh, 15th century conflict, what we know is rather limited. What I would say, I'm not trying to hedge, what I would say is that you can point to cannon making a significant impact in sieges before you can in battle. Now, in a siege, you've got a target that is fixed. You can bring up your cannon to relatively near it, and you can deal with the low rate of fire of cannon of that period, as well as the difficulty of adjusting range. So, for example, just to give you an example, um, on the island of Lesbos in 1462, the Ottomans uh, wrecked most of the walls of the fortress of Maitilai, and it then surrendered. Um, similar approach worked um, on the island of Euthyra in 1470 with the fortifications at Negroponte. And what you've got there is the Ottomans, who of course had battered the walls of Constantinople in 1453, um, being able to use artillery um, to move it by sea, which is a classic way of dealing with its weight and the difficulties of moving it by land in that period. And we're talking not just simply the weight of the cannon, but also the weight of the cannon balls. Um, the largest of the cannon at the siege of Constantinople in 1453 
fired a 600-pound stone ball, 272 kilograms. Now, that's, you know, that's going to do quite a lot of damage to a wall, but it would be wrong to say um, that artillery was the only factor in the fall of Constantinople, and I think there are other uh, factors that are worth bearing in mind, including numerical superiority of the Ottomans, their ability to throw troops into breaches and their willing once breaches are made and their willingness to take heavy casualties and ultimately that they only needed to break through one breach for Constantinople to fall. Um, but you know when we're talking about um, cannon taking over, you've got to be aware that the sort of medieval form of catapult known as the trebuchet, um continued to be used um, quite extensively in the 15th century and into the 16th century. And in part, obviously, as with any weapon system, it's because people have been fecked, are used to it. But in part also, there are the limitations of the heavy and cumbersome nature of large uh, siege pieces and also the fact that you need to uh, find um, the developed gunpowder and that in making an, a, a cannon, you've got enormous problems. Um, you need to hammer a length of wrought iron together to ensure that the seams are able to withstand the pressures generated within the barrel. Again, I don't urge you to practice this at home, but you can understand the principle. Um, and continuous firing meant that guns became hot, and <laughs> that has problems. You might get an ignition of um, gunpowder that's still left there because it's not properly being swapped out between rounds uh, and in the meantime it's not exactly easy to use um so what you're really benefiting from is um the slow motion of a siege so you know for example the ottoman capture of Rhodes, in which is a very well developed uh fortified position the knights of the st john the hospitablers very brave defendants uh, but, you know, it fell in 1521, and the battering principle um, works. But, you know, as I mentioned, it's not a magic weapon, gunpowder, it it's, it, and it requires a whole process of skills which are not easy to bring together. So gunpowder itself, which is a mechanical mixture of a number of ingredients, of which the most important is saltpeter, um, is used at a time when it, mechanical processes for mixing don't really exist. And on top of that, it's difficult to keep the powder dry. And there, and there, not just because of rain, but because of humidity, for example, um, well, particularly. Um, and, you know, that, that's, um, you know, that, those sort of things affect the, um, uh, the uh, reliability of the gunpowder. Is that why... Um... Gunpowder or artillery did not give Charles the Bold the victory at Nancy in 1477? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, again, I mean, a lot of these battles we have accounts of how far they, as it were, ex post facto hindsight formulations. I mean, my own personal view is that you should see Charles the Bold as having a relatively effective mixed armed uh, army in which artillery plays a role, but that he hadn't sufficiently adjusted to the potential enjoyed by opposing pikemen. And I think that, I mean, if anything, um, what you see, and this is ironic because this is a period generally regarded as the rise of gunpowder, particularly handheld gunpowder as well as 
canon, uh, it's actually also, in some respects, the late 15th, beginning of the 16th century. Uh, you can now adopt a contrary analysis and focus instead on the rise of the pike. Now, is that uh, why you downplay the importance of artillery in, say, Charles VIII of France's invasion of Italy? Well, I do downplay it. You're absolutely right. But also, I think the empirical uh, research indicates that um, you know, works by people like Simon Pepper uh, indicate that uh, many of the bold claims made have to be handled with considerable caution. Why do you regard, or do, why do you say that in the 17th century artillery did not play a central role in military conflict? Well, I think there are many military conflicts. I mean, some military affairs, obviously, siege class is extraordinarily important. Um, but I wouldn't say that if you're looking at the most important um uh, outcome, military outcome of the century, which is the overthrow of Ming China, uh, the world's largest military power by Manchu invaders. I mean, it, that's not due to artillery. Um, and I think one's got to be very careful uh, downplaying um, the continued vitality of, as it were, more traditional military systems. Now, the more interesting transition is when you get mounted archers replaced by mounted um, uh, people carrying firearms, generally pistols of some type, carbides sometimes. Um, that's an interesting transition. But cannon themselves do are not crucial, for example, in the... I'm not saying they play no role, that would be mistaken, but they're not crucial in the overthrow of the Ming or in the subsequent revolt of the Huge the three feudatories, which, as you know, is the key campaign in the uh, in China in the 1670s. And I would also suggest that although cannon are important in siege craft um, in India, as in Aransed's campaigns, um, they don't play a comparable role in battles. Um, and I take it further that it's generally agreed that many of the great sieges were determined well, some of them by artillery, but many of them were determined by other factors, such as uh, either betrayal on the part of somebody, uh, one of the defendants, or um, the arrival of a relieving army and the issues that that posed, as indeed with the failure of the Ottoman-Turkish siege of Vienna in 1683. So one has to be cautious. I'm not saying artillery doesn't play a role. What I'm trying to do to loop right back to the beginning is to say you can understand the role better if you put its usage in context. And I would say that remains equally the case with uh, forms of conflict at the present day, including forms of weaponry. Why did the West dominate the use of cannon in the 18th century? Well, the West dominates the use of cannon in the 18th century because of the um, continued importance for dynamic non-Western uh, military figures like Nadir Shah of Persia, for example, in the 1730s and 40s, or the Qinlong Emperor of China in the 1750s, of other other forms, other arms, if you like. Uh, obviously, both of them had cannon, uh, but both of them put more of an emphasis on mobile forces. And I think one has to uh, note that many of the European 
forces, the mobility when they're effective is provided not by uh, long-range power projection on land, but by long-range power projection at sea. And at sea, of course, and the Europeans are the dominant naval powers. We'll talk about that in just a second. At sea, of course, you often have on you know, one warship, you can have 64, 74, you can have more guns. Uh, many did have more guns. Uh, and that could be not too different from the total number of cannon in a significant uh, army force. Um, and, of course, the ships um, are, a, are essentially m mobile cannon carriers. Um, now, um, it's an interesting question which has been discussed and could be discussed further as to why naval powers of the 16th century, one can think, for example, of China, Korea, and Japan, all in the, at uh, the time of the Korean War of the 1590s, do not sustain that um, development, or do not development, do not develop it towards long-range naval power. So, for example, the Ottomans deployed a considerable number of ships for, to support their conquest of Crete from the 1640s to the 1660s. It took quite a long time, the siege of Gandia but did not have the, um, the, a, a similar power projection by sea at a great distance. Now, you can present that as either failure, or you can present that as choice, um, and you could argue that there were other elements that seemed to them more significant. Um, but that helped to ensure that the importance of cannon at sea helped to ensure that the Western powers were the most important cannon powers. Who would you say which power best employed the cannon in the eight, in the pre seventeen eighty nine period? Well, there is often discussion about the um, improvement of cannon after the Seven Years' War, the Gribeval system by the French. It's worth bearing in mind they didn't actually use the cannon very much. I mean, obviously they were at war with Britain from seventeen seventy eight to seventeen eighty three. Cannon play a part in, for example, the successful siege of Yorktown in 1781, um, we don't actually know what would have happened if, shall we say, the French had deployed their cannon in 1787 in the Dutch crisis against the invading Prussian army in, in, in the Netherlands. We don't know what would have happened. So it's a bit tricky, a bit difficult to say that. And certainly in their own way, um, the Austrians, um, the British, the French, all had um, effective artillery uh, in the late 18th century. How important was artillery to the success of Napoleon Bonaparte? Well, Napoleon is good at the tactical deployment and placing of artillery on the battlefield. He's good at institutional changes, uh, to use his cannon as an offensive force. He makes them as mobile on the battlefield as possible, utilizing horse-drawn limbers. He's good at massing his artillery. I um, mean, at, at Bagram in uh, 1809, he has a battery of 112 guns uh, to reorganize his attack on the Austrians. Um, at Borodino, there's about 200 French cannon. Uh, at Waterloo, of course, uh, he'd a large uh, cannon force. Uh, as it said, you, you know, you, you know, I mean, cannon, Waterloo, I think he's got 247 cannon, and the British have got about 157, and the Prussians 134. Numbers themselves don't tell you very much because Napoleon's Grand Battery also uh, is, you know, 
quite significant. It includes um, uh, 18, 12 pounders, for example. Um, but I think the point is that Canon can provide you with a tactical advantage on the battlefield. It is not necessarily a determinant at the tactical level, let alone a determinant at the operational level. At the operational level, Canon is most useful if you have a successful mobile um, siege force, which is you can sustain the usage of and provide the necessary logistics for. And as you may know, I've recently brought out a book on logistics because, in the sense, the other side of the history of artillery is the history of the relevant logistics. Um, but it's no accident that you know, Napoleon fails, and as you will know from my work on Napoleon, my strategy book on Napoleonic warfare, I mean, Napoleon's basic flaw is that he cannot move tactical skill and a degree, not always, not universal of operational effectiveness, into strategic advantage. And having more or fewer cannon doesn't really change that situation. Had he won at Waterloo, it wasn't going to necessarily do him much good against the Austrian and Russian forces um, invading Eastern France. Point well taken. How do you explain the evolution of uh, artillery in the hundred years after the Battle of Waterloo? Well, I've got an, a couple of chapters on that, and I obviously draw attention to artillery. And I, 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 I would say, and um, you know, in part, as in going right back to my War in the World, fourteen fifty to two thousand book, where I critiqued the notion of an early modern military revolution, I did argue that if you wanted to emphasize technology, and I think, you know, you have to do that within constraints, um, the 19th century where you had a mass production, you had standardization, you had the effective use of iron and the developing use of steel, all of those provide you with major opportunities. So in the case of artillery, you've got breech-loading rifled guns um, used on both land and at sea. And, uh, you've got rapid-firing field guns. You've got new propellants, new fuses, steel-coated projectiles. All of those increase the lethality of artillery. But ironically, of course, because these are being matched by other rival powers, you know, in arms races, quintessentially on both land and sea, that actually means that the relative capability advantage of an aggregate change is much less. And indeed, that is to play out in World War One. Which leads to my next question, which is, which of the powers in the Great War best employed artillery? Oh, the British in 1918. Um on the Western Front to smash through the German defences. And that's fundamentally, uh, they master the three-dimensional um, usage of artillery, particularly held by, helped by aerial reconnaissance, and um, far more important than tanks. Um, and, you know, obviously to, to deal with trenches, you need heavier high-trajectory pieces capable of plunging fire. Now, the British are not alone in producing those, but the British do, in 1918, uh, have a very effective use of uh, systematic coordination, uh, precise control of infantry, and uh, a very much larger number of heavy artillery batteries. They got 140 by uh, November 1918. 
And I got a, a, a good quote from chap I, that as I was reading in the, in the archives, a Lieutenant Colonel Percy Worrell. He wrote that the repeated German attacks on his infantry battalion uh, made from April the 13th, 1918 onwards were, quote, mowed down by a controlled fire, a good system of observing was established, communication maintained, and the artillery and machine gun corps did excellent work in close cooperation. It was seldom longer than two minutes after I gave X two, mi two minutes intense when one gunner responded with a crash on the right spot, and I cannot speak too highly of our artillery support. You know, this business of sort of ringing up, um, uh, you know, with reference to precise um, map references. And that would not have been possible in 1914, either in terms of the use of information, the speed of the use of information, or the available availability of the uh, the lethality of the support. Um, and you know, the the obviously the scale was very significant, but the usage was also very impressive. If I might just get one uh, again, this is from. Uh, private papers of the grandson uh, of the individual, individual Alan, who owns them, Alan led them to me, Alan Thompson, who was an artillery colonel, wrote to his wife Edith about the attack on November the 1st of the British 4th Division on the Western Front. Um, Zero was a magnificent sight, as my headquarters was on high ground in rear of the batteries, and I could see the flashes from guns and the shrapnel bursts from Valenciennes in the north, stretching as far as one could see southwards. Um, the gradual decrease of the Huns' shell fire told us that our lads were getting on all right. Now, that's a very, very interesting sort of, you know, writing to his wife in those terms. But actually, um, you know, if you read the infantry reports of the units that were counterpointed to the artillery, they comment very frequently, um, I mean, for Thompson, for example, the Brigadier General he was supporting added, quote, the infantry always knew the guns were close behind and ready to help uh, help them when required, and so on and so forth. I mean, they worked it out. It took time to work out, but they worked it out, and um, it required enormous industrial capacity, which we don't have today, of course, uh, It both in the manufacture of guns and in the manufacture of of um, the uh, armaments, and as as you will know, there were shell crises for all of the powers. Um, and what obviously people focused on is, in the case of Britain, the shell crisis earlier in the uh, earlier in the war, and not how the shell crisis was resolved. Was that why the artillery was referred to as "quote the king of battles" unquote during the Great War? Yes, and I think it's reasonably clear it was. It killed the largest number of combatants. Uh, it was more effective than the machine gun, but obviously the machine gun uh, was the one that people tended uh, to talk about because it was, in a sense, more novel and also more frightening in a way. Um, but yes, the artillery was uh, was really significant. What was instructive, of course, is that there was not the same um, effectiveness at sea. You have the aftermath of the naval race and the formidable fleets at sea, for example, the Grand Fleet and High Sea Fleet in 1916 at the Battle of Jutland, um, but without having the comparable effects. And again, we could discuss why that was. Fire discipline was an issue. They were only actually able to bring their guns to bear for very few minutes. 
Um, but obviously on land, there was much more preparation, again, against essentially static targets. Why do you say that, quote, overall artillery superiority was a key element, unquote, in the Allied victory during World War II? Oh, again, I mean, I try go through this in quite some detail. I think the um, it's the major strength in the Soviet army, um, and I think uh, the the British and the Americans um, uh, were very keen on using big artillery bombardments in to accompany their offensives. And the Germans, and you know, they used large scale artillery when they could. You know, at Stalingrad and at Battle of the Bulge, they had a ninety minute barrage at the start. They had no real answer. Um, and, you know, if you look at, for example, late 43, the Soviet armed attacks on the Eastern Front are benefiting directly from the lack of adequate artillery support for the Germans. German artillery was hotch-potch. Um, and, um, uh, you know, they, the field guns suffered because many were horse-drawn. The, Italian, the Italian artillery on the whole was old and had too little ammunition. And the Japanese, again, didn't have artillery to match that of the of the United States. Um, so, you know, there are some very impressive uh, Allied guns. The American 105mm and 155mm howitzers, for example. Um, the British don't have a really effective modern heavy artillery, but their 25-pounder uh, proves highly versatile. So... You know, uh, there there are some very, very, very good guns on the Allied side. Which power? And they know how to use them. Sorry, sorry, you can say yeah. Which power do you believe made the best usage of artillery during the Second World War? Well, I think the Soviets in forty four, forty five make a very good usage of artillery. Of course, the Soviets don't make real usage of artillery at sea and at both the British and the Americans. I would say the British more because the Americans uh, put more of an emphasis on their carriers than their battleships as perforce the Battle of the Pacific develops. The Americans have very good artillery in support of their uh, troops advancing in the Battle of Europe that begins with the D-Day invasion in '44, And um, the Americans... Um, the guns were well used and, of course, supported by excellent aerial reconnaissance as well. How did the usage of artillery evolve during the 40-some years of the Cold War? Well, during the Cold War, you get a move, um, varies by power and it varies by tasking, uh, towards missiles. Um, Surface-to-surface missiles um, are important, as, as are, of course, uh, surface to air, and of course at sea. Um, and the biggest change of all, I would say, is at sea, the end of the age of the battleship. I know the Americans still have one or two battleships in their reserve fleet, but essentially the end of the age of the battleship, and where the battleship keeps going, it's been repurposed as off um, the Lebanon by the Americans in the 80s for the use of missiles, um, although they're still using their guns a bit. Um, but if you take uh, that change, that's very significant indeed. On land, artillery still plays a role. For example, artillery is important in the, let's say, wars like the Nigerian Civil War of 67 to 70, or um, the Egyptians, when they attacked the Israelis in the Yom Kippur War in 73, benefited from the use of the 
and heavy artillery, or the British campaign to recapture the Falklands in 82 uh, benefited from um, their their artillery, their 105mm uh, guns. Um, uh, and, of course, you've got smaller use of uh, artillery pieces by insurgency campaigns, so the provisional IRA in Northern Ireland, um, improvised mortars, for example. Um, but I would say that what you don't have is battle on the scale of World War II. The nearest equivalent would be the Iran-Iraq War of 1980-88, to 88, where interestingly enough, I mean, artillery is used, Interestingly enough, one of the major uses of artillery is, as it were, the the Iraqi use after the failure of their initial attack of their tanks as, as it were, static artillery pieces or relatively rarely moving artillery pieces. Um, and that's an instance of the way in which um, people have to get their guns from somewhere. Why has artillery not been seen to play a key role in the post-1989 period? Well, I think we might not take that point of view if we were looking at um, the Ukraine war of 2022 to 2023. I certainly think that where you had fast-moving conflicts, like the one in Congo in the late 1990s, um, or, or indeed uh, the two Gulf Wars, um, there was an emphasis on firepower provided by more mobile methods. So... In the two Gulf Wars, primarily it was American air power and tanks. Um, in the uh, conflicts in in um, in Africa, it's generally been um, mortars or um, uh, very light pieces, heavy machine guns, for example, moved by trucks, uh, lorries in in British terminology. Um, the actual deployment of um, a classic artillery force um, is now less common, but obviously what one saw and has seen in Ukraine is where you move towards more static front lines, which is the position at the present moment, that artillery is used both to engage um, as a offensive tool and to engage as a defensive tool. And its ability to act in both those respects is very significant, has always been very significant as a form of um, at the tactical level. Uh, speaking of the Ukrainian war, anything in, in terms of the artillery aspect which you would characterize as uh, revolutionary in terms of usage? In the Korean War, no. No, I wouldn't. No, say, I, I meant the Ukrainian war. Oh, the Ukrainian war, no, no, not at all. Um, I mean, I think that um, you have more real-time intelligence um, offered, you know, as it were, the interplay between sensors and shooters has improved, and obviously you're using more drones as platforms, but I wouldn't actually say that there has been anything revolutionary. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I would like them to take away from the book, and each of the books that I have been writing, as that these topics are important in helping to explain the complexity of war, of military effectiveness, and of victory, and that taking only one of them away, uh, as if that explains everything, would be a mistake. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black, very much.
Thank you.